This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Rhonda Baird, editor of Permaculture Design Magazine and teacher and designer at Sheltering Hills Design LLC, joins me to continue our conversation about creating change. In our first interview, we spoke about the way that we can work on ourselves as individuals. Today we move from the inside to the out with how we can organize and support others and our community. In that frame, we look at the tools you can add to your toolkit to do this work and build your and others' competencies. Some of those include Theory U, Nonviolent Communication, and Dynamic Governance. We also look at facilitation and what it means to step into a role of leadership. Enjoy this conversation with Rhonda, and I'll join you again after. Rhonda, thank you for joining me again to continue our conversation about how we can create change. In our first discussion, we touched on the ideas of individual change, as well as how we can start to communicate with people who we're close to -to face-to-face, such as our friends and family, and in that, what we can do to create space for ourselves and others to begin this process of change and organization. And I wanted to have you back today to touch on that larger picture of what we can do to begin organizing. So what are some places that we can start this process? Is it about bringing in more allies or is it making ourselves present for organizations and those who might be able to use our skills? That's a great question. You can go about it either way. So uh, you can seek out allies and find people who share common vision and values. That's a lot of what we're after when we're working on a project, when we have a project in mind, something we are truly called to and dedicated to. And at the same time, you might look around and say, oh, someone really has this articulated and I can commit myself to that. That's how I ended up working with the North American Permaculture Convergence. I just thought, oh, I have some extra time and capacity. I could put myself forward in that direction and then realize there was a lot of need. And actually, it's true for many of the projects people have going that they that they need more resource, more energy, more time, more thought, more commitment from other people in order to see their projects expand and grow. Whether that's, you know, a continental thing like the convergence or a local project. And in my mind, that's one of the ways that we can get toward the 3% or 5% of people that we need in an area to really start to shift the culture is by finding those within our own communities that can have one of their needs met for participation or belonging or helping to co-create a world that they believe in by bringing them into a project that you're currently working on, you know, is just a great thing to see happen, to see that growth and the organizing aspect of that. And the other part of that is that it gets, people are very siloed. People are wanting their project the way they see it to move forward. And so sometimes we run into, I would say, troubled waters when we bring other people in or other people sometimes feel like they don't necessarily fit well because their capacity to co-create with us might be smothered just a little bit by the existing energies, I would say. So there's a whole set of things when we're, when we're growing and we're organizing or we're bringing people in where we want to be sensitive to the needs of other people 
where we want to find and discern the values that we're envision that we're really co-creating together and where we need to be gracious enough to allow space for those people to contribute in a way that is meaningful to them as well. And so what we're really talking about is ownership and power sharing, right? In a lot of the work that I've been engaged in, it's about how we can invite people into what it is that we're doing and where can we find those shared values and those leverage points that create that space where we can help. I don't want to say help because that seems demeaning sometimes, but where we can just provide opportunity for anyone who wants to come in. But it's in actually making that invitation. And as you say, power sharing, I think about many of the projects that I've been involved in over the years where just coming to a shared vision can be difficult enough. And there's this idea that was presented to me years ago that I've talked about before on the show called the BLAP, which was like Brooklyn, Boulder, LA, Asheville, and Portland, which is where a lot of people were moving to because that's where many of the active projects were that they were interested in. But I think about what you were just saying, and it gave me a bit of an insight in why people might do that because they can find those things that are already existing that they can create with, as opposed to coming into a community where you have a bunch of people saying, we'll help you do this thing that you're interested in, but we can't do it. We need you to take on that leadership role. And perhaps the people who are interested in this don't necessarily have the skill set at that time to do so. And so for those of us who are already there, what can we do as people who are aware to help facilitate those kinds of conversations and invitations. In those moments where people are exploring, you know, when they first make contact with an organization or project, when they're first invited in, they need space to discern for themselves. And as, a, as an organization or an organizer, we need to be, as I said before, sensitive and helpful of that journey, understanding of that journey where that person is discerning, is this right for me? Because not every project is going to be right for every person. You know, I was activated by environmental issues because I could see what was going on, but I also cared deeply about social ones and ended up in permaculture, of course. You know, my daughter is very much, comes out of an understanding, has lived with permaculture perspectives her whole life, but is deeply caring and focused primarily on social issues. So, you know, it's appropriate. People have to go through a discernment process. So. You know, I think as an organizer, you need to be able to help that journey along, give people concrete tasks. I'm a big believer as an organizer in, and a writer. No, nothing that I do where I'm in contact with other people, do I not ask for something concrete that they could contribute to? And hopefully, if I'm doing well, I'm asking them to contribute to something that they're excited about and is within their skill range or just at the edge of it, you know, because that's how we grow as people is to move just beyond the edge of our comfort. So you talked about leadership and leadership is something that people often, the ego could say you're ready for that, but true leadership is really in my mind about having competencies to see, you know, to, there are a whole set of dynamic skills that go with leadership, but also awareness and a, ability to give attention to a project. And so 
a person might be a great leader, but have too many projects going on. So it's not appropriate or won't help that project to thrive if they can't have both the competencies and the attention. There are other people who are fantastic at giving the attention, but they don't have the competencies yet. And so helping them to grow their competencies can be just a great way to bring them deeper into the organization and build the organizational culture at the same time. And I'm saying this from a place of, it almost feels like playing, playing God or whatever. It's the ideal, but you know, so we're all working this out off of some, not in the theoretical, but in a practical way with each other. And so personalities and dynamics come up and it's just a messy, glorious process most of the time. I think about how in those kinds of moments that we can look at different organizations in different models, whether it's something like Otto Scharmer's Theory U for setting up an organization or any of the other many different ways for putting together an organization or holding a meeting or anything else. But in this space of earth care, people care, and organizing around it, we don't have a lot of models for the social side. Many of these conversations are relatively new. We can find references to them in some of the literature. We can look to certain methods like nonviolent communication as an on-the-ground technique that we can use. But we're still really working around a lot of this imperfectly and trying to blend it together with our ideals and our values to build something out of it. So there's a lot of room for the mistakes that we make and being gentle with ourselves and others as we bring them in and try to provide these opportunities. And that there's a distinction between, I think, sometimes a hierarchical leadership where someone sits in a position of power versus how we might facilitate something as an educator or a teacher to create opportunities for ourselves and others to occupy that space within their competencies and to work as a group so that if someone has a particular skill or an idea, that they might be the one who takes the lead for a while until we've reached a particular goal and then kind of rotate them out, put someone else in. And in doing so, we not only share power equitably, but we all have an opportunity to learn and grow individually and with the organization. Exactly. And, you know, I find that no matter how much somebody has competency for something, they have also sort of a, a time limit of, of how long is that going to be interesting to them in serving in that capacity. And then in order for them to grow, they need to move into a different situation so that they're co-creating in a, in a, from a fresh perspective. And that's part of our people care is to know and have that allowance of not just pigeonholing someone into something and expecting them to do that for the life of the organization, you know, forever and ever, but to understand people's journey with different things. So yeah, exactly. That shared power and the rotation piece can be really a really great way to do that. I should say that this, this idea around competency and attention is something that I got out of doing the certificate in eco-social design with Gaia University. And Gaia University does do, I think the first piece, um, there's a two-week certificate on regenerative design that is free. I probably mentioned it in our last conversation. But that's a, that certificate is chock full of tools. So that's where I first learned about Theory U and presencing and a number of other tools like nonviolent communication. I mean, I knew about nonviolent communication before, 
but in and of itself, it, it was hard to put nonviolent communication while it's theoretically good in a context where it was really going to be super helpful. It took me a little two or three points of contact with NVC before I really got into it in the way that I think it deserves. That's one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about because NVC is something that comes up very often in permaculture and other circles. And my experience with it has been that it can be difficult to use with other people who haven't been trained in it because it can seem as if my feelings and what I'm experiencing is being offloaded on that other person. But I've also witnessed it used in exactly that way where it deflects responsibility and creates a space of blame, which was really strange for me to given how it was organized and set up from the conversations I've had people who are NVC facilitators and others. It just seemed like it went sideways very quickly, but it seems like there are folks who are addressing that. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. You say that it took you several times to kind of touch it before it seemed to work the way that it should. Have you had some of those experiences as well? I have. I mean, I came to NBC when I was working with domestic violence issues because it just seemed logical that we would want to work on on nonviolent communication and understanding, you know, issues around violence and control and abuse. So I I started to just approach it from a very theoretical perspective and ran into people who were beginning to study it for themselves, but were in dynamics and contexts where there were a lot of blame. And so I think reflected some of that capacity to to use it to shame other people or offload offload feelings and experiences that they were going through that they weren't really even processing. And the thing that really brought me around to it actually is reading a children's book called Giraffe Juice, which is comes right out of all the language around nonviolent communication. But it's a it's a children's book written to help children understand nonviolent communication. And suddenly I was like, oh this is not just about the formal ins and outs of what I should be doing with language, but it's really about accessing the other person's feelings and being present for them and also being able to speak about my own needs in a very clear way and understanding how that contributed. And so after I read that, then I could come back to it and understand it in a different perspective. And where I've seen it used really well is in the, right now I'm doing Sociocracy for All's um, Sociocracy and the, like, S-O-L-T. I'm forgetting the acronym right now. But um, I'm in their training for this right now. And it's an online facilitated course. And we are using nonviolent communication. We're using a way of being present with each other where it's just really beautiful to support each other and the way that we're working. So I think it's really helpful to introduce NBC in a context where there's a container. And what does that context and container look like? Or how do we utilize that? Again, it comes back to organizing. And I, my approach, what I'm coming to, is that it's, it's really about working with groups and creating group culture. And NBC is one of the tools in the toolbox. And so when I'm organizing, when, I, when a person comes into a group, when I'm uh, working on a project, there's an opportunity to create culture and expectations and to practice our ethics here, right? And some of that is about language. 
there's some process to setting up expectations as a group. You know, when I teach in, in Chicago, well, when I teach permaculture design courses, whether they're in Chicago, we do it more explicitly, but out basically in any PDC, we start with course culture, you know, creating agreements about how do we behave with each other. And a permaculture design course has a very specific container for interacting. And so in that context of the course, your setting of expectations allows you to use these different tools in a very specific way. It's not open-ended as it might be if you're trying to use NVC with someone who's never encountered these ideas before. And in this moment, it feels like we're working through some really big ideas and trying to find the language that is general enough to talk about it without falling into too much jargon. And that that's kind of hard. Well, what I'm hearing in choosing different sets of tools, an organizer needs to have a great toolbox. In VC, nonviolent communication is one of those tools. Learning facilitation is critical. The more I look at organizing and group process, the more respect I have for really good facilitators. And it's one of those places where, not always, but I do see a pattern of women who are in their 50s and 60s who've been organizing their whole lives tend to be really amazing facilitators because they have enough life experience and enough tools in their toolkit and enough mastery of those tools to help people process an emotion or be able to set it aside and get to, you know, group dialogue in a way that's really powerful. So I just have a lot of respect for facilitators, but especially for women who are capable of of doing that, that I've experienced in my life. I feel fortunate for that and aspire to be one someday. But, you know, but facilitation skills are critical. And if you want to be a good organizer, study facilitation process. And so along with that, I've mentioned the sociocracy piece or dynamic governance, as some people are more comfortable calling it. That is a whole toolbox that aligns with permaculture values that has within it ways to plug in different tools like nonviolent communication. It has in its vision and and structure ways of distributing power, including participation, allowing people to work through a journey, supporting people in their development of competencies. There's a lot in there. And so, you know, I would encourage people to go to Sociocracy for All, or there are a few other people who do training. Diane Leaf Christian does training on her own as well. There's Sociocracy 3.0. It's all around the globe. And I'm, and I'm learning that it's extremely scalable and applicable to not just community organizing projects, but also businesses, large-scale organizations. There's a lot of application there. So that's a great tool to put in your toolbox as a permaculture organizer. Yeah, so learning to have the tools, the right tools, and knowing how to wield them is really critical to becoming an effective organizer in your community. And yeah, it is challenging to talk about resource mobilization theory or restorative justice. And and because each one of those is a rabbit hole, just like permaculture in and of itself is full of rabbit holes. And so 
it just, I would say, be patient if to listeners, just be patient and take time. And, you know, something sounds interesting to you, just explore or sit with that for a little while. You can do everything, but you can't do everything now. And that's where, as we make space for ourselves, as we have conversations with friends and family about what we care about, we might want to do something like read Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning so that we can have an understanding of what it is that we value and is important to us, kind of as a guiding principle, and then use that to decide what projects and things interest us. And as we do that personal work, then we can look at developing our own toolbox. If we're not someone who wants to step into a traditional leadership role, that may not be our place, but what can we do to develop the skill set to empower ourselves to take the action that we need? Like perhaps if we want to influence the political process or policy, how can we be better at writing a letter and explore that kind of communication if we're going to be reaching out to legislators or maybe developing our phone skills? to make those phone calls and be ready to sit there and talk to somebody. But at the same time, if that's something that, you know, raises our anxiety levels, then maybe that's not the direction that we go in. But how can we create these different containers that provide us the room that we can look at our toolkit and then pull all the necessary tools out to put in a toolbox to tackle that one job? Absolutely. And listening to you just now, I was thinking about bookkeeping. I don't love bookkeeping. But groups that have funds or energy flow through, they need bookkeepers. You know, like no matter what it is that you can do, there is a way to contribute what you can do and what you're passionate about. And so, you know, that is really critical. And I would say I've been in a position where I've been in leadership roles a lot and I've been challenging myself not to take on leadership roles in participation in projects lately and knowing how to be a good follower is really critical. I talk sometimes about the fact that I like governance and being able to organize, but I don't necessarily like government in certain ways because of the way that that very top down approach can be destructive to communities and others because there's no context for the people who are affected by the rules and laws, just as those people who are sometimes making those choices don't necessarily know the needs of their constituents. And so a lot of my interest has been in direct democracy, pulling from the work of Murray Bookchin and his last book on that idea. And that's where part of our conversation in the last discussion and what you've mentioned today about dynamic governance and sociocracy is of interest to me, because I'm wondering how do we switch between those roles of leadership and following? How do we make ourselves present for those people who have something to share and not be dismissive because it might push against some of our ideas? And it goes back to when I think of leadership, when I was a manager many years ago in business, one of my early mentors had talked about the distinction between authoritarian versus authoritative leadership. And so my manager was very authoritative. He wanted to give people opportunities to step up and take ownership of processes and other things, as opposed to the general manager of the organization that I worked for, who was very authoritative, was the kind of person who would come in and say, this is what needs done. You're going to do it. These are my expectations. Meet them. And it provided two very different dynamics for trying to exist within 
a corporate culture where our boss was providing one thing and his boss was providing another, but also about the ways that that can flow out into organizations and organizing because there are people who take one side or the other because that's what they're used to or familiar with. And so it sounds like with what we've been talking about today, that that authoritative side may have a role at certain times, especially, you know, in a crisis, it's very nice to have somebody sometimes step in who's familiar with these things and just be able to give us a plan to work from. But that for many of our social groups, it's just not appropriate because of the people who can get kind of stepped on in that kind of a process. And so I was wondering, now that I've said all that, can you tell me more about dynamic governance and sociocracy as a tool in our toolkit in creating organizations that allow for this kind of power exchange? Sure. So, and I'm, you know, I'm still learning, I'm processing, and I'm working with one group in particular to to move it toward dynamic governance. And it's a new or newer group, so it's ready for this. And so part of how we do this is that what is traditionally a board or responsible for the organization, that group responsible for the organization legally holds that position. And what we're moving toward now is having what's called a general circle. And there are double and triple links between the board and the general circle. And the general circle is responsible or becoming responsible for the operations of this group, this legal entity. And the triple links are, are three people. It can have two or it can have three people that carry information back and forth and have multiple perspectives. So it's not one a one directional flow. It's a back and forth consulting process of information. And so while the board holds vision and responsibility for the organization at a legal level, the general circle is responsible for the operations. That general circle then has Right now, it has four sub-circles who then are responsible for portions of the operations like membership or policy and advocacy work. And that sub-circle, again, is double-linked to the general circle. So there's a leader that's responsible for making sure that the membership group is working well, functioning well. And the delegate from the membership circle reports back to the general circle. This is what's going on with our organization and or our subcircle and and how we're working on things. There's transparency throughout the entire organization. So any particular circle might only be made up of, you know, five to ten people. So fairly small groups. And then it breaks down. So there are fractals. So off of membership, there can be like a newsletter group of three to, you know, three to five people that just put out the newsletter and that's their area or domain of work. Again, transparency of information throughout the entire group is happening. Participation. What's happening within those circles is that there are rounds. So the advantage of dynamic governance or sociocracy is that it doesn't work by majority vote where 49% of people can be very upset about the outcome of something. And it doesn't work 
through consensus where one person can block a decision. It works through something called consent where everyone in the group agrees that the decision being made is within a range of tolerance, not personal preference, but tolerance. And that fits that decision and the range of tolerance fits with the vision and mission and domain that that circle is responsible for. And the brilliance of this, I had an experience where I was working with a group and thought that we were in consensus. And I had one person who didn't participate and undermined for about three years of my involvement, kept undermining where the group really wanted to be going. And so it set up all kinds of unhealthy dynamics. In a sociocracy or dynamic governance circle, there's not just consent being used, but there are uh, rounds ev where everybody speaks, everybody provides their reactions, and the group as a whole comes up with the proposal being consented to. Any objections have to be related to the proposal based on the vision and domain. And so there are all these sort of checks and balances, and it, it requires everybody to participate and have their perspective shared, and everybody is accountable for the outcome. It doesn't fall to one or two people. So you have these circles that kind of, when I think of traditional business organization, these would be like committees that are working together. And rather than having just one person from each circle go and communicate, you have a delegate who comes from the body of the circle and then the leader who are both communicating upwards through the different circles to create these links and chains of communication and responsibility. And through that process are creating ongoing visions based on the work of the board, the directions of the general circle to develop thoughts, ideas, policies that are then passed up and down and around these different groups to ensure that the work gets done in a way that everyone can tolerate or be okay enough with rather than necessarily being 100% enthusiastic which then in turn allows you to move forward on things more quickly than if you were hammering out the details continuously through consent. Exactly. And it's, so it's distributed power. And I can see where pieces of this, I mean, the idea of a board and vision makes complete sense. You know, I've worked in those kinds of, of areas before and I've helped to get an organization that was a working board and had no operations side actually then divide out so that they had vision and operations separate so that there was a board and an executive staff. But it sounds like the general circle that is overseeing the operations functions more as a small group taking the role of what might normally be the CEO or head of an organization that that power is shared between them. And then they're the ones who are helping to put that vision into place by organizing more groups of people who continue to share this power. That even though the general circle is making sure the work gets done, the general circle is not responsible for all of that. The sub-circles are. Exactly. And so, and there might be a CEO within the organization linking the general circle to the board and also still responsible for making sure that it's all 
flowing and and moving the way that it should. And so it creates this little, it creates a system with feedback loops. It's beautiful. And so, like I said, Sociocracy for All has been, I've been doing the training with them and all of their content is available for free. You can watch hours of YouTube videos from them. But one of my favorite pieces is a piece from a training manual um, and it's subject on, called On Feedback. So if you just searched for that, and it just talks about how we get so emotionally hung up on feedback and yet how critical it is for the smooth functioning of an organization. That's where it can be. I mean, to give feedback or to receive feedback can be difficult if there's not a good container for it. One of the tools that I was taught during my teacher training with Jude and Andrew and Rico was about the criticism sandwich, something positive that you liked or really enjoyed about something, then providing the piece that could be corrected or changed and trying to do it in as neutral of a fashion as possible, and then providing something positive again about what someone was working on so that it wasn't about just, you know, swinging for their knees. It was more about creating a space where you could deliver this information. And I find that it works really well. Some of the studies that I've read is that we tend to focus on the negative twice as much as the positive. So providing those two positives with the negative in the middle kind of helps to, again, provide that critique or criticism in a more neutral way. And then also being, as the person who's receiving it, understand how to take that graciously, that very rarely is anything that's being said to us about us or about something that we've done that, you know, we're a terrible human being or something like that, that it's just this space that the person who's sharing this comes from what they've observed and that it's not about us, but about the process or something that we did and that, you know, our words or our actions may be a part of us, but they're not us. And how do we kind of create space for that? And it's one of my favorite things is the four agreements as a space to work through many of these ideas and thoughts about personal and interpersonal communication so that we can be kind to ourselves and others. Yeah. And I've seen that criticism sandwich used in a very formulaic way. And so, uh, yeah, it's an art to do that well and not rely on it too much, you know, not to become disingenuous with it. And yeah, I think there's a lot there to say about, are we able to offer feedback that's, that's truly constructive that recognizes the intention and effort of the person and comes from your own perspective in a good way. And I love something about this. There's a question of, is this data or is this interpretation on my own part? And am I offering feedback that's data or interpretation in order to help that person succeed in what they're trying to do and also allow myself the space and needs to be met that I have, you know. And what you share there is something that I've been exploring for a while about how a conversation occurs in the space between the people who are who are talking to one another and that there's a need to be understanding of where we come from and where the others who we're talking to are because, I mean, something as simple as, as having a slightly different understanding of a word can completely change the way that our message is understood. Something like the word ignorant or naive comes to mind, because if we're using it 
is written, those words are not necessarily meant as negative. But the way that our society often uses them is as a pejorative. And so we may say that someone is ignorant about a subject, meaning that they just don't know. But because of that simple word choice can sound as if we're demeaning someone. And how do we talk about those things in a way that are respectful and respective of others and the space that they come from? I get in trouble all the time having, I mean, I was an English major, so I don't always use language appropriately, but often I'm very specific about my word choice and fall into that trap all the time, especially as cultures and subcultures, you know, I bump into other, you know, generations or other groups and fall into that trap all the time. I'm, very specific and yet I know exactly what I mean and I you know feel justified in my word choices and everybody else is exactly the same so again that yeah that data versus the interpretation and so then being able to look at the feedback we're getting oh this person has a different different interpretation of what I just said that meant something different to them we're human beings our greatest one of our greatest gifts is to make meaning together and to be creative together, how do I take the time and the space to make sure that our the relationship isn't damaged, but it's enhanced by working together on understanding where each of us is coming from? He's exactly right. Yeah. And in organizing, you know, as an organizer before permaculture, I said, oh, I, I would fight against all these things. I'd fight against forests being cut down or I'd fight against uh, homelessness and poverty and working with with all kinds of issues and violence and it just would burn out and with permaculture now I'm working to organize people in a vision that's very positive very creative so how can we reforest the planet how can we protect the ancient trees and older trees that we have that are doing so much because they're the ones that are storing carbon and fostering beneficial relationships in the rest of the forest. How can I work for food security for people? How can I help there to be understanding and connection among people so that there's not as much violence? You know, how can I pe help people understand their options and help them have control and be empowered in their lives so they don't feel like they have to lash out in abusive ways toward others? So permaculture was that step. You know, I think for us to move then into, you know, not just that positive thing, but to be able to do this in a way that where as organizers, we're not just burning ourselves out in terms of energy, but we're co-creating and taking care of each other in our organizations. We're actually taking the time to listen to each other. We're reinforcing values and vision so that we take it not just into our meetings, but out of our meetings and into our lives and then empowering each other. And I think that would be the next step is, is not just using organizing as a way to channel energy and flow and drain people, but to nourish them. I mean, that's the kind of organizational culture I'd love to be a part of all the time. And that kind of a culture helps prevent any sense of burnout and also allows for the flexibility as people come and go based on their time and needs. Exactly. And that speaks a lot to what you were saying earlier about containers and context and creating culture, that if we start with a vision and prepare expectations, that we can then 
develop the rest of these cultural norms, mores, and touchstones that allow us to create that kind of space together. Yeah, and I want to, you know, another thing that's been in the back of my mind through all of this is that my first stint in graduate school, I was an American history um, graduate student, um, labor and social reform movements. And we spent a lot of time focusing on the emergence of identity politics in the 19th century, and then the manipulation of identity politics by some people in power in order to continue to divide and frustrate people and to keep them from being able to ally each other and share resources and share vision. And I see that fallout of that now in our society so much. And when I think about what we just said, let's participate in organized groups that co-create a better world. And as we're doing it, create these cultures which nourish us. And I think about how I'm working on a certain set of projects and other people are working on other projects. The network, the interlinking of all of those projects into something that's actually quite strong and beautiful is a very hopeful concept for me. And I like where you've taken us through this conversation because it points to organizing being both more and less than what I was familiar with. Most of my encounters with it has been from the place of a charismatic leader stepping in, rallying people around them. They go out and do their work or mission, and maybe it lasts for a couple of months or maybe it becomes something ongoing. But this speaks a lot more to the individual interpersonal conversations and development of relationships that are necessary to create cohesive groups that are more than just rules or dictates from someone who brings us together, that it's about creating space and, as you say, a context and a culture that holds everyone who is a part of this work. And I look at the ways that we can use these ideas in a graceful way from everything from our family or our friends out to our community. And as you said earlier, that a lot of these ideas scale pretty well. And I'm looking at that model with your your circles in sociocracy and the way that we could readily apply that to many of the issues that we're working through within the permaculture community to be able to bring together educators in a way that we can be communicating about some of the problems that we're having, whether that's you know, filling classes now that there's a larger community of teachers out there to trying to resolve some of the curriculum conversations that are occurring and whether or not we need to begin developing more tools in that direction that take us further away from the designer's manual and create a different context or just answering some of the questions for students when they graduate from a PDC and ask that question of what do I do next? I don't pose those questions to take us down that road in our conversation today. But with what we've walked through and talked about today and the time that we've shared together, you've talked with me about facilitating dynamic governance and sociocracy, nonviolent communication, the idea of you know learning what, what we can do about organizing, about the eco-social design program. You know, if we want to dig into NVC in a way that might allow us to understand it better to go out and read Giraffe Juice. But with all of those resources and tools that you've already shared with us, is there 
anything else that comes to mind that we should know about around this idea of community organizing and permaculture? You know, the only other thing that comes to mind is not to forget that how you make a living, you know, can be a big part of organizing. Any business is an organizing adventure. So how you support yourself and, you know, there's a lot of tools around regenerative enterprise. You know, there's Karen Olson Ramanujan's Regenerpreneurs and, you know, other groups. And so I would say all of the tools, all these tools are tools of her toolbox, you know, and just explore those ideas. I see a lot of crossover now between organizing and social justice and new concepts around entrepreneurship. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities there. And that's where my co-host David Bilbrey is exploring a lot of those ideas about regenerative business and the intersection with permaculture. And so we're going to be releasing some more material around that over the coming months for people who are looking for how do they take permaculture and create a living out of it. So I really appreciate what you just shared with us because it is something that's really important. And as we try to live deeply into the ethics and principles of permaculture, you know, myself and many others are trying alternative economics. And what conversations do we need to be having around that to dig into the reality of what it means to try to live these different ways while still being a part of this capitalist system? And yeah, there are so many different things that are coming together. And I love Karin's work and what she's doing to help answer a lot of those questions about this period of transition that we're in. Like I said, it, it, when I look at my piece and the thing I, things I'm doing, and then I look at everything else, it's like, I moved from it's never going to be enough to, isn't it amazing what's happening right now? As I always like to do with these conversations, as I know that we could probably sit here and talk for another two or three hours about these different ideas is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation today? You know, I'm just reminded of Mollison's prime directive of taking responsibility now. And I think that that's something we can all do in our own homes, in our own lives, uh, in our conversations. You know, taking responsibility and holding ourselves accountable for how we approach life. And that leads us back to our last conversation that there is a place to start with all of this work and it begins with ourselves. So thank you for returning us to that place and for joining me again today to continue talking about these very big dynamic and often difficult subjects as we move beyond the landscape and look at what we can do to care for ourselves and our community while also holding earth in our minds. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Rhonda Baird. Find her at shelteringhills.net and Permaculture Design Magazine, which she edits, at permaculturedesignmagazine.com. What I keep coming back to from this conversation is that everything we talked about, from nonviolent communication to facilitation and leadership, are all skills you can learn. Though I've met a number of people who, through charisma and their presence, come across as natural leaders, you can be taught how to lead others in the moment or on a project. This doesn't require talent or exceptional abilities, just a desire to learn how to lead. A resource that can help you with this is the book The Leadership Challenge. Based on copious research of businesses large and small, this has gone through multiple editions and printings, and is one of the best I've ever encountered on organizational leadership and development. 
This has influenced countless leaders over the years and was required reading during my stint in graduate school. If there's anything you would like to learn more about, let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes, call 717-827-6266, or send me a letter, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until we meet again, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.